I felt like I was a playboy, you know. I wanted to, my, one of my silly goals, I wanted to hear an orgasm in every language. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I just thought, I thought, get married, you know. I thought, I thought, well, that just leads to divorce. Welcome to the On Fire Podcast, episode 12, with your hosts, Matt and Kellen. On Fire is a weekly podcast where we discuss financial independence, life hacking, frugality, minimalism, and living within your means. Matt? Matt, it's your turn. The part about reviews? January 4th. January 4th is the last time we received a written review. So I got beef with our audience right now. Unless you're one of the seven people that have left us a written review on iTunes like John Evans did, just know I got mad beef with you. This episode is brought to you by OREC 2018 a two-day event being held at the London Convention Centre in Canada on May 26th and 27th. If you wanted a chance to come out to meet a bunch of our previous guests, this would be your opportunity. Guys like Graham Stephan, Jeff Weibo, Michael Rosehart, Dan Warren, and a ton of others. Check out their website at orec2018.com. They've also offered a discount code for On Fire listeners, so check it out and use the coupon code LDNONFIRE to drop the price to 50 bucks for the weekend. Full disclosure, I'm the host of OREC 2018, and this advertisement only cost me $50 right now because no one else has been against me. If you're interested in becoming a future sponsor, slide into our DMs on Instagram, at Podcast. Today's guest, Aaron, is financially independent in Singapore. He was born in the U.S., lived in Australia, Indonesia, and all over the world. I found Aaron's backstory just fascinating. Moving to other countries for work, building up a new nest egg in each country, it's just such a unique perspective. But anyway, let's dive into the interview with Aaron. Awesome to have you on the show, Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us. One of the first segments we'd like to kind of dive into is back to the roots. So can you just kind of walk us through your background and how you discovered the idea of financial independence? Was it a book, a blog? Yeah, thanks for having me. and I'm excited to talk to you guys tonight. I stumbled onto the, I guess, the terminology on Reddit, like the phrase financial independence is fairly new to me, but the idea of it goes way back to when I was young and a child. I, I guess my grandfather was financially independent pretty early on, around 40 years old. And growing up, I used to always think of my grandparents as uh, the way they lived. I thought, oh, they're, they're poor, you know, they, they didn't because you know, they were frugal. They, they saved things, you know, but they had they had three farms. They owned a, a lot of land. They never had worries. I learned a lot from them. Do you think they passed down a lot of their like frugality and that kind of thing to you? Like, do you think that had a big impact on your upbringing? My mother always says, Holly, you're just like your grandmother. You're just like your grandmother. So w- when I grew up, we <laughs> were, I really loved my grandmother being around her. But, um, you know, she wore thrift, thrift store clothes. She, she had short hair, which was, was kind of strange for a, a woman back then, but it was easy, you know. That's why she did it. She had a good job. She worked, um, at General Electric, you know, a big company for a while. She was executive secretary. And when I was younger, I didn't, that didn't mean much to me. But now I also work for a, a big company and I understand, you know, so she was responsible for some, some things that were, were pretty important back then. And my grandfather, he owned a tire business. So this was back in the 1960s when, when they, I guess, accumulated their, their money. And, then he sold that tire business, and that's the point where he became financially independent. He would have never used that word, you know, and he, he would have never really, like, he, he didn't really want people yeah. to know what he had. And, and, and to this day, I still really don't know what they have. My brother has told me it's a lot, lot more than 
than, than you would think, but they're, they're real conservative. Hmm. My grandfather's since passed on, but my grandmother's still living. He, wow. I guess his, he enjoyed farming. They had a dairy farm and I, I grew up on that dairy farm. So that's where I learned, you know, about, about working and work ethic. And that was really good, a real privilege that I also didn't appreciate until I was older. You know, it was just, to me, it just yeah. seemed like that, that's what people did. I didn't think it was all that special, but now, you know, people want to go on vacations for farm stays and stuff. And not, not many people get the, the opportunity to grow up on a farm. So I guess a lot of it came from that, but the terms back to that mostly came from Reddit. I like to read Reddit and I stumbled onto it, onto that subreddit. It's funny. I think I know Matt's been in this game a lot longer than I have in terms of like, he was back in the early retirement extreme days, which was like, you know, like one of the first initial blogs that like you yeah. know, pioneered this idea. I found it probably through Reddit as well. So Aaron, if you can just walk us through your story, what did your journey to financial independence look like? And what caused you to move around from country to country? Well, how, how that happened, I, I never intended it, honestly. I, I really liked where I lived. And when I went to college, I, I applied at, at schools in my state because it was it was cheaper and I didn't have, have that much money saved. So I got into a, a school, that was, it's called the Virginia Military Institute. I didn't have to pay hardly anything to go there for four years. I think I paid $4,000 for four years and got a computer science oh, degree. Oh, wow, interesting. And... So I'd been working on the farm before that. Farm work, you get up at four o'clock in the morning, hot, cold. It's hard. I wanted to work in, in the air conditioning. That was my goal. <laughs> the air conditioning repair school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a small goal. But I remember that's how I thought. And they had an advertisement up for research interns for the, the summer. They were doing research between the, the chemistry department and the computer science department. We were working with robotic arms. So... I threw my name in the hat and it's a small school. There weren't that many of us. So I think it was me and one other guy that applied for it and they picked me. So I spent the summer between my, my freshman year of college and my sophomore year. I just stayed in school. I didn't, I didn't go home. I stayed there, lived in the, well, we called it the barracks, like a dormitory because yeah. it was a military school. That was the first time I got on an airplane because we got to present our research at some conference in, in Boston then the following year, I went to the career services there on that we had at the, the school and said, you know, I want to get an internship. I'd heard someone else talk about an internship. Or, I didn't really have great guidance or coaching in my life, but I heard, you know, that's you can make some good money in the summer with an internship. And this guy, he, he had a friend. It was kind of like a connection. He was networked into this big pharmaceutical company called Merck. And at the time, it was one of the it was one of the most admired companies in America. It was a really good place to, to have an internship. I went there and I think I made thirteen dollars an hour, which I thought was huge money mm-hmm. for the summer. And, and, and again, I was in in the air condition and I was in the school I went to it was all all boys. So I was around some some girls from the other colleges. I just thought it was great. It didn't even feel like work. You know, it was a great summer. Yeah. Following that, I got to do an exchange program. A lot of people do their, their semester abroad, but we were in the midst of a, a big su- Supreme Court case. It's kind of famous. And from that time, it was all in the newspaper. We were the last all-male military college in the country or the last all-male school. And so the Supreme Court of America forced the school to integrate women. And part of the plan with that was that they needed to bring women from other military schools in the country 
they had an exchange program and to make it affordable, they traded some of us around. And I, I got to go to Texas for a, a semester to a big school called Texas A&M. So that was the first time I was really away from my home state. And I, I really love Texas. Texas is almost like a different country in America. They call it tech. They call themselves Texicans. You know, <laughs> Texas for a while was its own country. They talk a little different. They really have culture there. You know, they, I remember the first thing I learned was I hadn't been there a day. They taught me how to two-step, you know, you still ask girls right. to dance there. It was just, you know, so I had a cultural experience. I always refer to it as my semester abroad, although it wasn't abroad. I love that. And I came back and, and did another internship with that, that same company, Merck. I had a computer science degree and graduated in 1999, which was the, just the, the peak time to have a computer science degree. Absolutely. That was the doc, right before the dot-com bust. I mean, it was like months before. So you could just do, if you had a computer science degree, you could write your ticket. Every interview I went to, I got a job. I got a job offer from NASA, Lockheed Martin, wow. IBM. I got four from the company with the internship that I had, Merck, this, this pharmaceutical company. Some of the jobs, most of them, I didn't even understand the job description, honestly. But, you know, I'm a new college student. I'm trying to act like I know what's going on. Speak until you make it. Oh, yeah, I just graduated. Yeah, But if a few of them said the reason I, I picked the one I did is that it listed travel. It said that it said something like, oh, it's going to require travel like 25 percent of the time or 50 percent of the time. And it said in you know, places like Australia and Europe. And I thought, well, this sounds awesome. But I thought I don't understand the rest of what it is. It was about software testing and development. And I, but, the, you know, the travel part sounded cool. <laughs> It was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So I moved to Philadelphia. I knew another guy from my school that moved up there too. Actually, two guys. One of them went to grad school there and another one started a job somewhere else. So we got a place together, shared a place for about a year. I worked in a, this little gray cubicle. The job turned out not to be like what I had expected, although I did get quite a bit of travel. I went to Puerto Rico, Europe, Canada, worked a little bit nice. in Montreal up and down the East Coast of, of America. So I started traveling a little bit, but it was like, you know, one week at a time, two weeks at a time. It was nice to get away from the office, but the office was this building. We must have had a thousand cubicles in that building, the little gray cubicles. And the place was really politically correct. And honestly, I was really not a happy person. I wanted to go back to Virginia where I was from. And I thought... Right. You didn't feel very free there. Like, yeah. <laughs> And I started I started looking online. They had an internal job posting board. And what I was really trying to do was get back to Virginia, where I was from, near near my family, where I'd started out with that internship. So I'd go on there and look what job openings there were, and I'd post for them. And a lot of them were just long shots. I, I'd be bored at work, and I would just, you know, post up my resume. I must have applied for 50 of them. And one of them was in Australia. And honestly... It's still to this day, I don't know how I got, got this job, really. I guess I just did good in the interview because it was mm -hmm. it was in manufacturing. And this was a manufacturing company. They make medicine. Well, they do they do research, um, development, sales. I was in a supporting role for a laboratory. But I didn't have any experience with chemical engineering or engineering of any kind, really. But I guess I did good in the interview, or I must have said something right. They, and the interview was a lot like we're doing right now. It was like a, a Skype sort of thing, like a re yeah. remote thing. So apparently 12 people applied for it, and I got the job. 
but it wasn't a sweet expat deal like a lot of people get. You know, a lot of people go on assignments with these big companies and they they pay for your house and they you get a lot of benefits, yeah. flights back and forth. All I got, and, and I'm appreciative of this too. Looking back, they gave me they gave me three thousand bucks. They gave me a one way ticket, and I was no longer a U.S. employee. I became an Australian employee. So the company saw me. It's kind of funny. It's like I'm two different people. It caused some issues in the system because in a big company like that with 60,000 people, you have diff- you know, they give you a number. You know, I got to Australia that way. And that was actually the, the moment that I got out of debt, too, because I, I had after I finished school and I was kind of depressed in Philadelphia. So I bought myself a new truck and I had a girlfriend and got engaged to her. I bought her a diamond ring, all that on credit, you know. So I'd run up some, some wow. debt on my, my credit card. I'd done some stupid things, not not a huge amount of debt, but I still wasn't in, in this mode where I was saving. But that was the moment that I, I paid off everything. I had, had $4,000. And I think that's the moment that I feel like I became financially free. I always say this when I talk to people. I, I think you really don't get any any more free than when you have enough in your emergency fund, your emergency fund keeps bigger and bigger and you can gets bigger, you know, and you can deal with longer emergencies. That's kind of how I've always looked at it. I'm the early retirement side. I'm not as, I guess I'm not as keen as a lot of people are because some part of me enjoys having a purpose and working and, and the skill set that I've, I've built up. It just, just aligns to, you know, working for a corporation. I don't think I'm going to sit down and write a book or, or go be a ski instructor or, you know, I think I, I probably will. I might, you know, cut back or change things, that sort of thing. Totally. I think with FIRE, I mean, it's almost unanimous, it seems. People are very interested in the idea of financial independence, but very few people are interested in the idea of actually yeah. retiring. I think the retire early part of it is the sexy thing that you hear when you're working in your cubicle and you're like, I want to get the hell out of this job. But once you get to close or when you get to financial independence, you're not actually interested in retiring. You're not interested in not doing anything. You're going to start pursuing other passions and doing working on the things that you actually yeah, want to work on. it just gives on. you a lot more options. And even even at this point, I was only 27 years old at this time. And like I said, I only had $4,000. But And I left this part out, but I had to take a pay cut. And I almost didn't do it because of that, because it, I felt it was so insulting, mm. you know, that you should always get a pay rise. And, and a lot of people, actually, most people advised me not to do it. It had more to do with the exchange rate and it also had to do with big companies. You have to understand that there's like there's salary bands and everything's real controlled. They, they don't make big exceptions. And and like I said before, this was a new area of the business for me. So I, I really wasn't worth that more looking back. But for about a day, I was like, no, I'm not doing it. It's off the table. You know, and then, and then I slept on it. And I thought, you know, this may be the only chance I get in my life to, to go to Australia on such a good deal. They're, they're going to cover my visa. You know, I've got. I've got support here. You know, I'm just going to take the risk because it did. It felt like a risk. So totally it is. Yeah. And that's when I started getting frugal, too. It was a, a good opportunity to start, you know, on a clean slate. Like I didn't buy a new car this time because when I left Pennsylvania, I sold that new truck that I bought and the depreciation was shocking. I hadn't hadn't had it that long, but, you know, I, I'd been making payments on it. I barely got enough to discover what I owed on it. And I realized what a dumb move that was. So I got there, I had, they gave me 3000 bucks. They gave me option of putting me up for a, a month in a hotel and giving me a rental car. 
But I knew a guy there and he said, just stay at my house. And and, and I talked him into giving me the money. So it was like 3000 bucks. And then some guy at work was selling a car and he, he wanted 2,500 bucks for it. And I said, I just, just tried it. It was like a crappy car, you know? And I thought, oh, maybe if it works for six months, it's still a win. So I said, well, I have a thousand dollars. I said, will you take a thousand? And he'd been trying to sell it for a while. And he, he was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> I guess his wife was on his case or whatever. So I, I got this car for a thousand bucks. Now it, it, it looked like a thousand dollar car too. I don't want anybody to think that it was, you know, that great of a car, <laughs> but, and the other thing I, I drove it home, I just bought it. I drove it home or to this guy's house. I was staying with the thing caught on fire on the way home. The, <laughs> turn on the air. <laughs> so it was uh, pulled up the hood. It had something to do with the air conditioner. I remember I, it was like a low point. I was like, Oh, I'm such a fool. You know, I took that thousand dollars and I bought this car and now it's on fire. You know, it didn't, it, it didn't, it didn't last half an hour. It was literally the, the ride home. So I took it to these, this Australian mechanic the next day. He fixed it for like 30 bucks. Now, when I say he fixed it, he, he sorted it out. The air conditioner never worked again. So I always had to just roll down the windows, but I drove that car for three and a half years. So for a thousand bucks. And at the end of three and a half years, it barely would go anymore. But I, it was good enough that I, I drove it to the junkyard and they gave me 400 bucks for scrap for it. So for three and a half years, $600 I spent on that car. And uh, it, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. $200. Yeah, so think of all I, to go I, wrong. I, figured, I remember I thought once about, I probably saved, you know, if, if I'd have bought a new car or something, I don't know. It, it would have been tens of thousands of dollars I saved on transportation costs. Also, I, I tried not to drive it that much because I knew that it wasn't a great car and, you know, that, that something could go wrong. I didn't live that far from work and I'm in Australia, good weather, you know. So I started biking. So I biked to work almost all the time. And I got this idea that if I'm going to move this car, I'm never going to move this car for one reason. I'm always going to do at least two things. And so I, I started keeping lists of stuff. You know, if I have to do errands, I'd go out and do everything at once. And I started thinking in things like, like nice. not just money, also time, you know, because really time is a bigger thing than money. You run out of time, you don't get time back. You can you know, find ways to make more money, but you know, time is the, we, we always learn time is money. Time equals money. People say that all the time, but I think I think once you figure out, you know, time's greater than money, that's when that that's the the real truth. So I totally agree. That's a great way to look at things. I mean, time is money when you're working yeah. time for money. But when you start earning money in ways that aren't necessarily time for money, all of a sudden you start realizing I can make money and not waste all my time on yeah. it. I can start using my time for other things. So what ended up bringing you to other countries in the world? Like you've lived in a lot of places. What, what brought you to uh, some yeah, of these, so like Singapore, Singapore Indonesia? Right but it was Australia that, that sort of led to all this. So then I got super networked in, in Australia with, I met people from everywhere. Australia is a country about the size of Canada, but with only about around 20 million people, maybe it's a few more than that now. It was 20 million when, when I was there and they're all in, in the cities that, the middle's empty and there's a lot of immigrants, people from everywhere else. My boss was an English guy. So I worked there for seven years. Near the, the end of the time, the Australian dollar got really strong. We were a small factory. There was a merger with the company. The economy was bad. This was around 2010. You know? So they announced the closure of this factory. 
I was ready to go at that point because I hadn't got promoted. And I, I was a bit homesick too. I was ready to get back home. But by then I'd become an Australian citizen or I was really close to becoming an Australian citizen at that point. So I stayed, I wanted to get that because you can be an American and an Australian, you can have dual citizenship. So I thought if I ever want to come back, then I won't have to get visas. I can come on my own terms and all that. Well, it's, that'd be super powerful. That'd be an amazing thing to be able to just go to another continent anytime you want. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have, and I built up savings there. I still have a nest egg there. And, and also with Australian citizenship, you have the right to live and work in New Zealand as well. So, or, or vice versa. If you're a Kiwi, you can live and work in Australia. It's almost like a different state. Interesting. I didn't know that. So, uh, yeah, I'm just like, I'm like you guys. I'm a subject of Her Majesty the Queen. You know, I had to. Swear, I swear an oath to a picture of the queen. It was kind of funny, you know. <laughs> I've never done that, at least not my memory. What's that? You're born in here. Oh yeah, we're born into it. We don't have to. Yeah, yeah, you're born into it. And there's there's a lot of Canadians in Australia too. That's where I've met most of the Canadians because you know it's a Commonwealth country. It, Australia and Canada are, are real similar in their way of life. You guys, your accent's more American, but your your culture is probably more close to Australia and you know, the weather's so good and all there. So and Sydney's just a, a beautiful city too. Really expensive. That was the drawback. And that's why I wanted to leave because I was like 35 by then. I think I was 34, mm-hmm. 35 and everybody else buying a house, having kids. And I'm still living with roommates, you know, like now I'm starting, it's starting to get to me. Although I had a really awesome roommate there. This is a little sad story. That's almost unbelievable. But so they're closing that factory down that that I was telling you about. And I lived with with this guy that also worked in the factory. And one part of the factory was a laboratory that did testing. And that was the first place they were going to close. They went out. They had this lottery syndicate. They went out and bought lottery tickets every week. Australians gamble a lot. I think it's the biggest country for gambling. And I used to, because by then I, I was really into saving money and math and everything. I sat down with him a few times and I told him, I said, look, you know, gambling's just a tax for people that don't understand math. You've got to quit doing this. You know, it's just a waste of your money. Probably not one month after I, I had that conversation with him, they hit the biggest Australian lottery jackpot in history. It was a forty-eight million dollar, forty-eight wow. million dollar lottery jackpot. And there's no taxes on lottery winnings in Australia. Forty-eight million, free and clear. But it was sixteen of them, so sixteen of them split that forty-eight million dollar jackpot. Oh yeah, and, and there's also two winning tickets, so they actually got twenty-four million to split sixteen ways. But it was still one point five million apiece. So wow. we're not, we weren't even thirty years old yet. We were, I guess, we were right around thirty then. And so I thought, actually, I'm the one that broke the news to him. He was on vacation at the time. He he just didn't believe it. I called him on the phone. I said, "You got to get home. You, you've hit the big one." He thought it was a joke. I would would have been the same. The guy comes home and I thought, well, I'm going to have to find another roommate. You know, your roommate becomes a millionaire. He's <laughs> getting no need for a roommate anymore. And we really got along good as roommates. We lived in a nice place. But we decided, actually, when we met each other, we both lived in kind of crappy places. And we decided, instead of just in trying to save as much money as we can, Let's get a nice place. We'll still save save a good bit of money, but let's get a nice place together. We can be proud of, you know, have girls over, stuff like that. So we had a place right on the water. It was was good. We we enjoyed each other's company. We'd become good friends, although we didn't know each other before we moved in together. 
And he said, no. Well, at the end of the day, you still have a roommate. So you're still probably coming out ahead yeah, of a lot of room, people. Roommate, God, that's the other thing. I talked about a car, but roommate, it, car and roommate, if you want to say, save money, those are the two most important things. People are always worried about saving money on groceries, you know, like, yeah, that's that's a good idea. But you, how much can you really save on your groceries? You know, if your grocery bill is 500 a month, the most you can save is 500. When you, you start cutting your rent in half and your, your utilities and you cut your car expenses to nothing, you just can't you can't save uh, in other categories like that. And also roommates yeah. are give you other benefits like I was talking about, like being friends and, you know, there's there's social benefits to it. You you meet their friends. I really enjoyed having roommates, actually. I, I was kind of sad when when I finally did move out on my own. But anyways, back to this lottery story. So I thought the guy would move out, but he was like, no, I really like living with you and I'm not going to change anything. I'm just going to see what happens next. Cause the next thing is we're all getting laid off from work. They've already announced the, the factory closure. So in Australia, Australia is a good place to get laid off from work because they have a lot of laws. They call it redundancy there. I don't know what the word is in Canada. In America, we say layoff, oh, yeah. but in Australia it's, it's redundancy. You get the package or the formula is really good. They and they don't tax you on any of it. Anyways, I got 14 months pay. I got more than a year's pay, tax free. It was nearly a hundred thousand wow. bucks all at once. And he he got something like that too. So we just you know rode it out to the end. And one week later, after I lost, it wasn't even a week. So I knew I better get right on getting a job. Although a lot of people were like. I'm just going to take some time off, you know, relax. And I guess I respect that decision. I see why a lot of people would do that. But for me, I remember it was like an identity crisis. At first, I, it was the happiest day of my whole career, which is kind of ironic. It's almost like getting fired. You know, they bring you in, but I couldn't get the smile off my face. I just got this six-figure check, you know. I thought, this is, this is awesome, you know, it just double my savings or something like that. And I didn't know what the future held, but, and, and I went to a pub in Sydney. And when it hit me is, I guess when you talk to girls, particularly in Sydney, there, there's two questions they ask you within the first 30 seconds. Where do you live and what do you do? And I had to answer that question, what do I do? And suddenly I couldn't answer. I'm unemployed. I just felt super uncomfortable about that. I guess it's a psychological thing. I think a lot of men are like that. You know, you tie yourself so much to your, to your job. So I just got right into yes. it, got right into looking for a job and it didn't take me a week. And the new job, I got a $10,000 raise over what I was making before and didn't have to spend a cent of that, that money that I got. It's still in savings account in Australia. I put it all in an index fund and it's, you know, more than doubled since then. So and I'll just leave it until I don't know what I'll do really with it. One day I'll go back to Australia, I think, you know, since I'm a citizen and maybe I'll use that money to buy a house. I don't know for sure. Good to have these options. That's pretty neat. Yeah, just, just leave it sit there. A few times I've thought, oh, when the exchange rate fluctuates, I have a condo I could pay off in America. But it, it always come to the conclusion, no, it's best just to, to leave that nest egg right where it's at. And, you know, because it, it kind of it's, it's like diversity. You know, they say, you know, diversify your savings so that if something goes bad in one area, you still have the, the other to you know back you up. So what ended up bringing you to Singapore then? Well, I went to China for a little bit, but that was pretty brief in that new job. I didn't like the new job where I got the, the raise. It was like a small company, but 
I needed to kind of bridge things for a little bit. I tried to like it, but I didn't like it. So as soon as I, I got an opportunity, yeah. my, my brother, he's into mortgages in Utah and his wife was selling houses and she got pregnant. And this was during the foreclosure crisis in America. There were just foreclosures galore. And they had a like a link with Fannie Mae, which is the big underwriter for the mortgages in America. He lived with some guy in college that worked for Fannie Mae. So they were, were kicking him all the, the foreclosures. So when you get a foreclosure, when you're the real estate agent for a foreclosure, you kind of have to act like the owner of the house. It's, it's a little bit different than selling a normal house where people actually care about it. With foreclosures, people don't care. They know they're losing it. So sometimes you have to start with kicking the people out, evicting them. You always have to like replace the carpet and paint at minimum. Sometimes it's worse than that, you know. So there's a lot of fixing you have to do. You have to track all the expenses, charge it back to the bank. They cut the fee. But the good thing is you get the listing. You get the listing. Listing's great in real estate because then people come to you. My brother's wife was pregnant and it was just too much work for her. They were getting so many. So he said, look, you can be a real estate agent. It takes like a month. I think I did all the class online. It was pretty easy to get licensed. So I started helping with that and sold foreclosures, learned about short sales, bought a condo of my own. And also in that time, I picked up a night shift job. It matched up really well with the uh, real estate job because working night shift, then I'd meet people at work that were looking for houses, you know, so it was a good way to stir up some business. And I, I would just go around and door knock too, because yeah. people didn't understand what to do. So many people, people would lose their job and they couldn't pay for their house and they would publish, it's on the public record. It's called Notice of Default. So I'd get the list of the Notice of Default every week. Notice of Default is the first step in the foreclosure process. So if a house shows up on a Notice of Default, there's like a 90% chance that that property is going to, there's going to be a transaction on that property in one way or another. And the banks were changing their policy. Foreclosures aren't, aren't a great way to do business. They lost more money with foreclosures than they did with short sales because short sales, then the people have some incentive not to tear the place up, you know, to leave it in good condition. They still had some leverage. So I started looking for those and I would just go around knocking on doors. It was kind of, you get different reactions. You know, people would be, some people were just in complete denial or you might like sometimes the wife would answer and she'd have no idea that the husband wasn't making the payments. You know, I don't know, like uh, how some people felt about it. Not many people would do it like I did it, but I stirred up some business that way. You know, maybe I'd have to knock on a hundred doors, but then I'd, I'd get a listing. You get a listing and you didn't, you know, then you get more business, you get, get sales. And so I know one month I was making on the side, I made like $20,000, not every month, but some months, some months wow. and most wow. months you, you make nothing, but then other months you make, you close several and you, you make, you know, a lot of money in addition to my regular job. So that's the life of an entrepreneur. A lot of people try and do that with their day job. One that like they're working their day job and then on the side, they're working on their side hustle. And then sometimes eventually their side hustle gets to the point where they're making uh, more than they are at their day job, at which yeah. point. They tend to well, pursue their, estate, their side I, hustle full time. I, and, and I don't know about every side hustle, but of all the side hustles, you know, or as they're called side hustles, it's really easy to get a real estate license. You don't have to be anything special. You just have to pass the test and you don't have to really commit that much time to it. You know, so I think if you sell one house a year, I figured it out once one house a year, it makes it worth it Two, you're winning. 
So, and if you sell four or five, you're doing great. You can also work another job. Actually, I think it's in your best interest to work another job because it keeps your your network of people bigger, you know, and you find more deals. I mean, I hate to badmouth real estate agents, but yeah. all you really do is show people where to sign their name on the form and open doors. You know, it's not. And I know some are better than others, and they'll tell you, you know, they have skills, and and some do. It's mostly people skills. My sister in law is really good at it. I'm not particularly good at it. I know I'm not like, you know, the real salesman type. And I also didn't like some of the, there's a lot of sleazy things in real estate too. And I'm more of a, like, especially with, with foreclosures and short sales, like people would do things like offers would come in and you don't show them that offer or or they, they kind of, they lie on, on their offers. I know one offer came in and they said, they're going to put 25% down, but they didn't have 25% down, but at closing, no one cares as long as you come up with the money. But, you know, little things like that. And people don't even think it's lies in real estate. It's just how they do business. But I, I didn't really feel comfortable with a lot of that stuff. Not that it was in, I don't think it was super unethical, but it wasn't really my style. And, and the also the amount of time. So after a while, you know, I was kind of burnt out on it. And another opportunity came up that got me eventually to Singapore. A guy called, so they... They'd shut down that factory in Australia, and a guy I used to work for had moved to he moved to Indonesia. They were trying to set up the same operation in Indonesia, you know, much lower cost, but they they were doing the same sort of thing we were doing in Australia. So he offered me a job of six months to work as a consultant. So I had a few days. I he said I could go through an agency or I could set up my own business. So I figured out in like like two or three days how to set up my own corporation. Not a whole lot to it, but I set up an S-Corp and yeah. moved to Indonesia. Six months turned into four years there. In order to avoid Indonesian taxes, Indonesian tax law says if you work in the country more than half the year, it's like 182 days or something, then you have to pay Indonesian taxes. But if you work less than that, six months or less, then you don't pay taxes to Indonesia. So I would work one month there and one month off. Since... I didn't have any reason to go home. No family wasn't married or anything. Hmm. I would just take my month off. I'd go to the Philippines, Thailand. I went to Rome once. My salary quadrupled, I think, and my taxes went almost to nothing. My whole life was an expense. I lived in hotel rooms for, I think, more than 800 days, nearly three years. I never, almost all five-star hotel rooms too. Wow. Wow. Because it's Asia, you know, Southeast Asia. I was like, I mean... Money goes so far. And then I met a air hostess. I met her on Tinder, actually. That's why I'm, I'm now in Singapore with two babies. I never thought I'd get married. I never thought, thought I would, but she and I got together, got married. She, she got pregnant really fast. And my life, life changed. And I, I tried to work in Indonesia for a while longer. Both of my kids were born in Indonesia. And I really liked Indonesia. But then I got this... I guess my mentality changed a little bit. Indonesia is a bit wild. You know, there's like, it's, it's chaotic. And I really liked that for a while. But then when I had kids, I, I started like worrying about their, their safety and their education and things like that. And Singapore is like the safest city in the world. It's really secure. So a job came up here through the same channel, all from Australia, all that network there, same people. Some of them were working here in Singapore. Then I came here about six months ago. 
And I really love it here. I'm surprised how much I really like Singapore because it's, it's, it's got a lot of laws and restrictions. And I thought I wouldn't like that, but I guess so many of the bad things don't happen here. Like we don't have drugs. We don't have crime. We don't have graffiti. So you take away all, all those things and it just, it's just such a pleasant place to live. We, we never hard, hardly ever lock the door just at night. We leave it open in the day. It's a good city for biking. I don't have a car. We bike everywhere, public transport. So building off the idea of Singapore, I think a lot of our listeners probably have kind of a preconceived notion that it's an expensive place to live. What's kind of been your experience with that, Aaron? That's exactly what I thought, too. I thought, and I always thought that. Now, I traveled through Singapore a lot when I was working in Indonesia, and I would like I would never go out. I would just be like, I'd, I'd stay, I'd make it as short as possible, and I'd go on to Thailand or wherever else because of the expense. You go buy a round of drinks, it's like 200 bucks here. It, easily, you spend 200 bucks if you're buying for other people. It's $25 a drink. Yeah, it's crazy, that kind of stuff. I think oh, wow. it depends on the point that you're at in, in your life. So I'm, I'm actually at, at a pretty oh. good point because I'm not – if I was dating and going out a lot, like alcohol is expensive, entertainment's expensive – but with two young children who aren't in school, school is the other thing, too. School's really expensive here. So I might find it out of my price range or less desirable. But with a six-month-old and a 20-month-old who are just in preschool, or the 20-month-old's in preschool, it's preschool's like, it's about 130 U.S. dollars a month. It's like two hours a day. That's a bargain. They, he speaks three languages. He's natively learning three languages. That's priceless. We don't have car we have a, a huge, by Singapore standards, we have a huge flat. It's not in the, like the trendy part of town, but it's, it's close to work. Everyone here is really good neighbors, really good public transport. Like that's not expensive. Food, food is cheap. You can, if you eat like a local or if you live like a local, really, because there's a lot of people in Singapore that only get paid like a thousand a month. I think a whole lot around on 2000 a month. So, and I make a good bit more than that. I mean, I don't make like a huge, huge salary or anything. I, I, I make for my age, hey, we saw right, at, right at six <laughs> figures, but my wife doesn't have to work, but we've got a nanny that lives in the house or, or the apartment. And so if I could actually just jump in there, Aaron, I'm not sure. Are you familiar with Mr. Money Mustache? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read that. I enjoy it. That's a really good blog. And so I'm sure you've probably seen... He constantly refers to uh, the Internet Retirement Police. So I'm sure the Internet Retirement Police would be barking right now about the fact that you guys have a nanny. Can you kind of walk through how that actually works with kind of a lean fire perspective? And just what does that actually look like? We don't have family here, first of all. So my wife doesn't have any anyone to fall back on. It's just her. And we have two kids in diapers. She's breastfeeding both of them. And I'm working. And also the culture here, the culture in Singapore, everyone has a nanny. People have nannies for their dogs here. Older people, elderly people, almost everyone has a, a helper that lives in their house. It's regulated by the government. We pay a tax on it. Oh my God, um, actually? It costs us around a thousand Singapore dollars a month, counting all the, the taxes and the, the payment that, that she gets. And the, there's an agency fee. So it, it's not like crazy cheap, but think about, you know, we don't have a car. We're not spending anything on a car. We stay at home a lot. Our house is immaculate. I read on your blog before that like there's all sorts of free things to do, low cost stuff. Healthcare is reasonably priced. Weather you say yeah. is tropical. It's got an amazing airport. It's really safe. There's no crime. 
So like, why, I think it's the best. Why is it that you think that not everyone's already living here? Is it is it a challenge to get a visa there? How does that all work? Well, I think one of the reasons that it's one of the best cities in the world is they're picky about who they let in here. You know, you have to have something to offer to be here. You can't just, you know, hey, I'm going I'm going to move to Singapore. You have to be the sort of person Singapore wants. You have to have a, a skill set they want, or you have to, you know, be an investor. To move here as an investor, you have to have a huge amount of money. I think one of the one of the Facebook guys did it. I uh, heard something about it. He he renounced his American citizenship and moved here as an investor because of the low tax rate. So Singapore is like wow. a, a really really low tax rate. I think probably the reason a lot of people don't move here is that they're they're just really restrictive on who they they allow to come. We thought about because I like it so much. I've thought about staying, you know, becoming a permanent resident. But there is one issue with that. I have two sons, and if every every male permanent resident or Singaporean, they all have to serve two years in the military, which I don't think is necessarily bad. Actually, I don't mind it. I think that there's some some positives to it, but I just don't really like making that decision for other people, for my kids. So I, that's given me some pause. But if it wasn't for that, mm-hmm. I think I think I'd just I'd stay right here. I like the the job and. I'm going to stay here for a while. I'm going to stay here for as long as I, I can. But I guess you have less freedom here, too. People talk about that. You have less freedom. But I haven't really noticed it. Like, I don't know what they mean by that. Maybe maybe you can't go have protests or something. But I'm not a, a protester. I'm not, like, really into politics. I don't know. Maybe shoot a gun. I don't have a gun. I, I mean, whatever freedoms that are um, restricted here, I haven't, I haven't noticed. But the increase level of security, you know, the, the fact that you don't have to deal with people don't steal your stuff. You can, you can just walk away from your stuff. You know, it's going to be there. You get really complacent here, actually, that you just become so confident that, that nothing's going to happen. They run out of things to write about in the newspaper. They write about the, the wildlife, like the otters. That's the big thing in Singapore. They write about in the newspaper that what are the otters doing lately? (laughs) There's a family of otters and they got in a fight or they ate someone's, uh, they ate someone's koi fish. <laughs> we get yeah, that some monkeys turning over trash news, barrels so. in the north part of the city. Like it's things like that in the newspaper because literally nothing happens here. You know, so it's a it's it's a really peaceful place and a lot of diversity and culture. Good food. The expensive thing. Real estate's expensive. If you go out drinking, which I don't do, cars are expensive. But a car is just purely a status symbol here, and you have a really low tax rate, so. It's even though, yeah, in, innately, you would not think Singapore is a good place to lean fire. And, and it probably isn't or not, maybe not lean fire or fire at all. But it, it probably isn't when you, you weigh it with, you know, some of the cheaper places in the world. But if you're a guy like me that is not, you know, so dead set on laying on the beach or uh, retiring completely, that you know, I, I still enjoy working. I just turned 41 last month. So at this point in my life. It seems really good for me. And I've already saved enough. Like, I don't have to continue saving, although we are we are able to save here 40, 50 percent a month, even with a nanny and, and all the supposed expenses of Singapore. Like we go to the it's called the bird park near here. It's like a tourist trap. Some, it's like a zoo. But they had a promotion where for the price of one day entry, you could get a year long pass. So we got that. Now we, we go down, we'll go down there for an hour or two, you know, late in the day after it rains. And it's a pretty cool place. It's like a really awesome park. You wouldn't, 
you know, I don't think you would go there every day if, if it costs you the entry fee, you know, the daily entry fee. But when it's when it's free like that, it's yeah, it's a good place to we get, they got a water park in there. There's beaches in Singapore, really good beaches. They're not like, uh, it's not like Fifi or Bondi or, but they're pretty awesome beaches. I mean, they're clean and tropical. So I think it's a really underrated yeah. city. Yeah, I think you've definitely uh, piqued our interest in it. And so I think one item I kind of want to make a point almost just for our audience that something that came very clear to me as you've told us kind of your story and your travels is, you know, despite all these different countries that you've spent time in or lived in, you seem to constantly find opportunities to life hack or kind of pursue the lean fire path, regardless of really your surroundings. So whether that was in the United States, Australia, Indonesia, or Singapore. And so I think that's just awesome. I just kind of wanted to highlight that for our listeners right now that, you know, you're living proof that kind of regardless of where you live, you can find opportunities to optimize your life, to reduce your personal overhead by house hacking or rent hacking or living with roommates. And so and not only that, you have control over where you live. People talk about you know, the living expenses that they have to deal with. You are in full control of your living expenses. And if where you live right now is too expensive or you're making it too expensive for yourself, you can always move somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. And and also, yeah, and that's the big, when you move somewhere, so I've moved countries four times. So I have like kind of a, I guess, a template or a process I go through. That's the first thing, figure out where you live. And, and you want to live really close to work, as close as possible. I notice a lot of people do, don't do it that way. They, they think, oh, they always ask, you see people on the internet, where, where's the cool place to live? You know, where's the, it's Singapore, I think is every, every place is cool. Every place is nice. I guess some places are better than others, but you live too far away from work. Then you start spending, you know, an hour, two hours a day more sometimes and in, in traffic, it makes your life worse. People, and, and it adds up. It's just the same as like compound interest. It's like, Compound time. It, it's all right. Maybe today, maybe today one hour is okay, but it's not just today. It's today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, back and forth, back and forth. And it wears you down. So you make a small radius around where you're going to go most often, which is usually work. Maybe it depends on what, where you're, what you're moving there for, but, and then you find the best circumstance that you can within proximity to work. When you're, you're close to where you, you work, then you, you have more options to do things like walk or bike or ride share, you know, or other opportunities come up. But people, um, a lot of times they don't think about it in the right way. And you don't, you don't know what you'll find either. Like I, I found so many cool things around here that you just go out and look around, you know, you just walk around, talk to people. Yeah. You drive past yeah. it otherwise, but when you're on your bike with your, I've seen on your blog, you had a trailer that you tow by on your bike with oh. your kids, like, that's when you start stopping to smell the flowers. You start realizing all the things that are within that small radius yeah, of your, yeah, you really, of your really own discover place. Your, you can't see that stuff from a car. You, you have to get out on foot. Yeah, get, and that's when you, you find so much more from, from a bike. And bike riding is, a, is really totally. fun. I had one issue with it. In Sydney, I got hit by a truck. So you have to remember safety, you know, with, with bike riding. And that, that scared me. I mean, who cares how much money you save or how healthy yeah. you are if you get killed by, by a car because you're stupid. I wasn't actually stupid. They just yeah. didn't see me. So you, you have to always be aware of that with bike riding. Some people use that as an excuse to, to avoid bike riding, though. 
but I've always thought it's, it's fun. It's like when, when you're a kid, you love it, right? I remember when I was a kid, I loved bike riding. So it's a risk benefit trade off. And I think riding a bike, yeah, it comes with its risks, but all the things that comes along as benefit are, I think it makes it totally yeah, worth yeah. it. So you definitely like sold us on the idea of Singapore. Was there, is there like a lot of red tape that, that you need to cut through in order to go there from, come there from another country or how does that work? Well, you can visit easily. Like it's easy to visit, but you'd want to find a job. Most likely you'd want to find employment. I, and if you have the right skill set, if you have certain, and, and there's a lot of industry here, almost every big company is here because Singapore is a tax haven. There's a few, a few places in the world like, like that, but, but Singapore is the, probably the top one. Be, I mean, Singapore is, a, it's a little Island at the end of the Malaysian peninsula and they're, they don't even have enough land here because so many companies want to build more places here. So they, they're bringing in land from like Cambodia or somewhere to fill in the sea and make it bigger. I can see it out the window where I'm working. They've been doing that for years. They call it land reclamation. So all the big companies are here. They do, especially manufacturing companies will set up. So they do some of their processing in one place and then they, they ship it somewhere else and do some of the, the processing there and, and everywhere where they do processing, it adds value to their product and then they're taxed on that value that's added. So wherever the most value is added, they try to set that up in tax havens. So it reduces their, their tax rate. So if you have a, a skill that you can offer companies, anything from, it, it doesn't have to be technical either. Like we have like HR people, we have salespeople, it's it, all sorts of people. But I found it through the job I found here was, was through people I know, like my personal network of friends. So Facebook is really what's what's helped me. I have a, a really wide group of friends from living in all, all these different places, not even really close friends, just people I kind of keep up with, you know. Well, one of, one of these jobs, it came from a girl that I hadn't really talked to in, in, in years, but we used to sit beside each other and we used to be used to be, I guess, reasonably close, but we hadn't talked in, in eight or nine years, but someone offered her a job and she couldn't take it because of her family situation. And, and she uh, said, oh, I know someone who might, and, and that's how, how it came to me. So, wow. Just, that really shows the value of networking. We try and preach that every day. Yeah. Um, often that your network is just as important as your net worth. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think. And so we noticed, Aaron, that you've mentioned on your blog that you think that a lot of people approach traveling kind of in a less than efficient manner, or maybe that a lot of people approach or have a view of traveling that's misunderstood, this idea of having a return ticket. So do you mind just kind of walking us through your approach to travel? Is it slow travel or how would you kind of describe your approach to travel? Yeah, I think back to, you know, when I first started, started doing it, especially when I went to Australia, one way ticket, like, or maybe, maybe I'll step back from that for a minute. Airplanes haven't been around but like a hundred years, right? But traveling's been around a long time. So the way people used to travel, they would get on boats. They, they didn't think about coming back home. You know, they were going one way. You may, may never see them again. Now we do it. We're tourists. You know, we, we come have a look. You know, we follow the, the tourist trail. And it, not to say that that's necessarily a bad thing. That's that's all some people want to do. But if you really want to get to know a place, get to know people, you want to be part of it. You want to. You don't want to be looking back. There's some quote I can't quite remember. Don't look down. Don't look back. So a return ticket, that's that's an escape plan. You want to go through it. You want to go. That's not the way you want to be thinking when you, you go somewhere to uh, live. 
go go one way, go go to go to stay, go go give it a fair chance. That doesn't mean like with me, I haven't stayed any of these places forever, but I never knew when the end was. I in my mind it was you know, forever. I don't know. Maybe I didn't just think, oh, I'm just going to be here forever. But I never thought about leaving. I never thought that, you know, on this day, I'm going to leave. I'm going to stay here one year. I'm going to leave or I'm going to stay five years because I wait. The way I look at it and sometimes I really have a hard time answering this question, especially in interviews, that that question about what's your five year plan. I can't tell you for sure, because I don't know what good might come along. Things pass by you. You might get a really good opportunity it might lead you in a different direction. So I think you, you just always, it's like riding a wave. You, you ride that wave until a better one comes along. Don't, don't just jump off of it just because you you get some bad feelings or, you know, so many people, they're impatient. They don't endure. Sometimes you just need to buckle down and endure, you know, like that's a big thing with this, this community of fire that, that, that I see is, is I feel like it's just a lot of people that just hate their jobs and all of us kind of, you know, all of us are going to have days where we don't like our jobs. You don't have to love your job, you know, but one of the easiest, cheapest things that you can do is find a way to be happy at work or find a way to, to have purpose or find a way to change your mind to, you know, look at it differently. I did it myself from early on, you know, those early years, I, I was probably clinically depressed. Now I see what I do is, is something that adds value to the world and does good in the world, even though I might just be, be doing some mind-numbing spreadsheet you know i know it's 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 a piece of the puzzle it's a you know something important keeping a a positive attitude is is a it's a really cheap easy thing to do to help you endure especially if you have if you don't have enough money to quit right now or retire that's you know may as well be happy with it and also don't quit until something better comes along wait endure because things happen that you don't know like some of these jobs like the one i told you about that the girl sent me from Facebook. I wasn't the first choice. Several of these jobs, I wasn't the first choice. But, you know, people quit, things change, management moves around, things happen that, that you don't know. New opportunities I think it's come smart up. to like, you're talking about riding the wave. I think that's a really, a great way to look at things as long as you are open to opportunities while riding that wave. Because a lot of people <laughs> will do that for, you know, a dozen years. And, you don't want to just like yeah. riding the wave could be similar to staying in your comfort zone. And you're not the type of person that seems to do that, which is neat because you're riding that wave, but you're all, you're kind of going with the flow, but you're also jumping on opportunities when they present themselves. Well, like Australia, like, like Australia is a perfect example. Like I, when I, I said I had to take that pay cut, you know, I had to, it, it, it's not always so a storybook, you know, but I did, I jumped off I, that, that Australia wave came by and I jumped off the one that I was on and was higher paid, but, and eventually yeah. my pay came back up, but I had to, to make a decision then, or when I, I quit in Australia and went back to America to sell houses, that was, uh, also another time where, where I, I made a decision, but you should be kind of sloth about those decisions, you know, like not, not be, I think, I don't know, maybe it's people have different, some people aren't that sloth about it and it seems to work out for them. Some people, it seems like they switch jobs yearly or every, every two years and, and they do really well with money. But I guess money wasn't my only motivation. I've filled up three passports. I've got a 20 month old baby sleeping back there that already, already speaks and understands three languages. I have a really, really awesome wife. Like my wife, I, I can't like, she, she just, she just loves to cook for me and take care of me. And 
The same with me for her. I wouldn't have found her if I didn't get out and, and, and go other places. Like when we're from two different worlds, she grew up, you know, in a Muslim family and I, I grew up in America. If So money wasn't my only motivation either. I guess that's another thing to, to keep in mind. I like how you definitely kind of blur the lines between the short-term travel and like the long-term actually living in a place. So I assume that that's probably why you tend to prefer renting versus owning, or is there other reasons that you kind of fall in those lines? I, you know, I, I was telling you about when I left Australia, it was starting to bug me that I didn't own anything. And I did buy something. I bought, In America, I bought a condo. And uh, it's a, so I, I rent it now. I lived in it right around two years. Downtown real estate, really nice, nice place, luxury. Florida ceiling windows. You can see the Rocky Mountains. But I only lived in it two years. And after that, it hasn't really bothered me about, about renting. And I look back on it in hindsight, the fact that I had had roommates and all, I, I don't think it hurt. me. I think also it, it helped me. There would have been a few times if I had bought a place, I don't know that I could have because the economy was bad for a few years. It was hard to sell a house. I might have gone upside down. I might have I might not have been able to take some of these opportunities that came along. But that that said, I, I do think that that real estate is, is a good decision for most people, you know, especially people that, that are, are settled down, married with kids. And I think you, you really can't go wrong. You can make poor decision living too far from work, things like that. But I think if you're going to be somewhere for a while and you know you're going to be somewhere for a while, don't worry too much about what the price level is right now or, or you know, just like everything else, don't try to time it. Just save your money and get into it, you know, get, get, get a house and you'll be better off for it in the long run. I think most people actually have most of their wealth tied up in their house. And I have one and it, it's done pretty good. I bought it at the right time. It's a rental. I'm making money on it. It's easy. I've rented it to some European company that, that sends their expat employees over for that. They started a railroad company. So it's been perfect for that because I'm not renting it like to a person. I'm renting it to a company and. I'll keep it as long as it's no trouble. It's absolutely no work for me right now. And the building that it's in is restricted on the amount of rentals that that they allow. So it kind of creates a little bit of scarcity of rentals there. So it's really easy to rent. But real estate also is one thing. It's kind of a headache. Like these guys that are real into, I'm not one of these guys that, that wants to manage real estate. I know a lot of people do well at that, but I'd rather just, buy a stock or index fund and, and let it go up and down and not think about it. You know, it's just so much more hands off. And yeah. and then so just talking about kind of how you approach your investing, Aaron, we're kind of curious. You've talked about kind of this go with the flow approach and you're still also saving like 40, 50% of your income even now. Do you set out, like, do you reverse engineer your goals? Like, are you setting out milestones each month or year that you're trying to hit when it comes to your personal financial wealth or kind of what your passive income is? Or how do you approach all that? Back to that part where I had $4,000 and no furniture, just a mattress on the floor in Australia. That $4,000, I knew I could last two or three months if something bad happened. And since then, the way I look at it is this money is, is here for if something bad happens. I guess if nothing bad ever happens, you know, I, now I figure I could endure about a 27 year emergency, you know, then then good. Or, or and, and now I'm starting more to, to try to help other people. You know, we, we help some people in Indonesia. There's a couple of girls that were helping. We're paying for their college and a widow that used to work at the hotel I lived in. Her husband died at work, and, and so we, we send her some money. And 
So I guess I don't have a plan just to, to, to kick off with it yet. Right now, it's just I'm just accumulating and looking for the best opportunities. So I have accounts. I probably have 20-some accounts, which is they say don't have so, so many. And, and a lot of them are just small. But, but between four countries, I have you know investment accounts in, in all four countries. We've just started one here in, in Singapore. In Singapore, there's no capital gains taxes. My wife and I are citizens of different countries. We have prenuptial agreements set up, so her finances are, are separate from mine. So we have kind of an odd set of circumstances that probably aren't similar to many people. But since we've come to Singapore, now we're, we're building a nest egg here. So I built a nest egg in Indonesia. I built a nest egg here. I've got one in America. I've got one in Australia. And I don't move things in between one to the other. I just leave them where they're at. And and that actually, I think, has helped me because I read somewhere where people that mess around with their investments, you know, and they, they try to time it and change things. That That's like the exact wrong thing to do. I've always been, I guess I'm smart enough to know I'm dumb. You know, I'm smart enough to know that I don't, I don't know what to do. So I, I would be, I just be, I'm just going to leave it. I don't know if I move it, is that going to make me pay more taxes or, you know, uh, so, and, and I have done some dumb things. I don't want to say I haven't done anything that wasn't dumb. But for the most part, I just just put it away and just just leave it. And also, I guess one other thing about when, when I start in a new place, I feel poorer again, too, it, which kind of helps me. It's like a psychological thing. Like I'm in Singapore. My bank account's at zero. It's almost like I forget that I have bank accounts in, in other countries. I'm like, oh, I got to kind of build up some savings, you know, and it, it gives you gives me motivation yeah. like to. That's really interesting. I've actually never heard anyone in the financial independence community kind of talk about that idea. But I love the idea of essentially building up multiple retirements almost from country to country as you move around. That's so unique. I've never yeah. heard anything like it. And like the idea of starting over. Yeah, I don't know that no one gave me advice about it or anything. And I didn't set out to I didn't like have this grand plan. It's just how it, it worked out. Like you know, I have a American retirement. Yeah, I have a retirement in all these countries. And so, so we wanted to jump into our last segment of the podcast. It's called our Fire Four. There are four kind of quick questions that we ask every guest. Our first one is just, what are you grateful for? Well, really now, I really just love my family. And I would have never, even, even two or three years ago, I would have just laughed at if someone said, one day you're going to have a wife and kids. Because I was kind of like, I felt like I was a playboy, you know, I wanted to my, one of my silly goals, I wanted to hear an orgasm in every language. <laughs> I was, I was just, <laughs> so I just, I just thought, I thought, get married, you know, I thought, I thought, well, that just leads to divorce. I got engaged three times, but then, you know, I met this, this girl and, and we just got along so good. And what happened is I thought that I was going to have to leave Indonesia because even then, I still didn't think I was going to get married, even though I liked her a lot. I didn't see any reason to. I thought I wouldn't just live together. That was always my idea. Just What's the point of getting married? You just live together. But we had the security issue in Indonesia. I was going to have to leave because they were going to change security policy. They didn't want Americans there because it was something to do with like it, it was a total overreaction. We were scared of terrorism. Anyways, that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. But what when it happened, I thought, well, I don't want to leave you here. I'm going to take you with me. And the only way I could take her with me as an Indonesian was marry her. So that's when I told that that's when it came up. But then and then everything changed and I didn't leave Indonesia. Then I'd already asked her to marry me. So I was kind of I was kind of stuck then, you know, 
but it, it was fun. And maybe that's the only way, actually, maybe that's the blessing in disguise. Maybe I never would have got married. Then I got married and we had these, these two babies and it's kind of a surprise blessing, but I, I love coming home. I used to five nights a week, I used to go out and drink beer and I, I don't have any, I don't judge people for that. I, I don't blame. I love, I loved it. I had a great time, you know, you know, now I can't wait to come home, see my, my babies and their face lights up when they see me, you know, it's just something I, I never expected. And I was, I was a bit older than most people and also being financially secure for it has helped a lot, you know, being able to get an Annie, things like that has made it, made it easier and better. So that's the thing I'm most yeah. grateful for. Grateful that, yeah, grateful I got an education. Grateful I, I, I chose a, a good that's degree. Awesome. Those are a few things. That speak English, natively speak English. That's a big one. That that because I can't speak anything else. English gets you really far in this world. So then talking about our second question for the Fire Four is guilty pleasures. So is there something that you spend money on that's maybe not particularly frugal or maybe a tool that you can't live without? I'm not like there's not too much now and then I'll, I'll buy yogurt at the mall when I walk by. But I've quit doing that because I recognize what was happening, you know, because I'm real aware of, of marketing and that sort of thing. I always try to avoid it. But really, really good mango yogurt. But I think I'm over that one. <laughs> That's amazing. We that reminds me of our, one of our guys, previous guests, Graham Stefan. Like for the longest time, he's one of his guilty pleasures was the five dollar foot long at Subway, and like just like <laughs> yeah. this is not something you'd ever expect from a guy who's like living in L.A. and like driving like expensive cars and like. <laughs> oh no! No Subway is one of like they're one of the ones. These places like they spend millions of dollars figuring out exactly where to put that Subway. The Subway actually is right by the yogurt place. So they do all this this research, you know, so he, I, I get it. I, I like Subway a lot, too, but uh, I'm a little more resistant to that one. But so now I actually I walk the long way around to so I don't buy these freaking they're seven dollar yogurts. They are. Good. They are good. Now, I guess that's that's one of my guilty pleasures. And also, I'm kind of a, a sucker for my little boy, the oldest one. He, he's starting to like toys. The other day we were out bike riding and, and, and I bought him I bought him a twenty dollar stuffed animal, which is just outrageous. I even when I bought it, I thought it's a freaking stuffed animal. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't light up. You know, it doesn't have a, it, it does nothing. But he, he picked it out and he was walking around the store with it and I'm you know, I'm soft hearted, so I bought it for him. <laughs> and we ride everywhere on bike and within five minutes he'd thrown it off the bike somewhere, you know, it was like in a ditch, it's gone, you know. <laughs> Such a waste. Such a, I should just set twenty dollars on fire. So little, I guess even little things like that. But for the most yeah. part, I'm pretty resistant to that kind of thing. I don't have too many things that I, I can't get. I love up. that. So, is there a frugality tip or life hack you'd like to share with the listeners, especially with such a strength and resistance like that? That's a real challenge people have in terms of maintaining their frugality. So, is there any are there any tips or anything you like to offer? I talk this one over with my wife. I try to think of one that was kind of interesting, not to just give the same old things. Like my wife was like, buy secondhand stuff on the internet, which we do a lot, but everyone kind of knows that one. One that I, I got, I picked up on too, was people that have good stuff that don't need it anymore. One time I got a really awesome deal on a car from a girl at work. Her, her father died, you know, and old, old guys take really good care of their stuff. And not that I didn't get, I was sympathetic that her father died, but then, you know, then she was talking about, she started talking about she had to clean out his house, get rid of his stuff. So I started paying attention. I, I knew there'd probably be some good stuff in that house. And she, she had this, it was a Hyundai. It was a, not a great car, 
it was like five or six years old, but the guy had only driven it like 20,000 kilometers or something like that. He barely had, he just drove it to the grocery store or something, you know, he was an old guy and kept it in the garage. You know how old guys are. They take yeah. care of every little thing, you know? So it was like a new car. I went and looked at it and I made her a low offer or, or I said some offer and she she refused it. She said, no, that's too much. She wanted more. But so I guess no one else wanted it or whatever. And like, I just waited like a month or or two went by and she called up, said, do I still want it? And I got like an almost new car for, it was around 5,000 Australian dollars. My girlfriend at the time drove it for a while. So that was a poor financial decision. So <laughs> she, I, I kind of, I sort of gave it away to my girlfriend, but I got, got a really good deal on something because and I guess some people know about it, like estate sales and that sort of thing, but pay attention to things like that. Or when those guys won the lottery, that I was telling you about it was 16 of them won the lottery. What do most people do when they win a million dollars? They all buy new cars. So I got oh, two cars. Yeah. I got two $1,000 cars from those lottery winners. I got one for my friend and one for me. That's awesome. One of those cars I, I drove for several years. It was a Nissan Pulsar. I could fit an eight, eight foot long surfboard inside of it. It was a great car. Excellent car. Got it for $1,000. It was worth at least six or $7,000. But the guy didn't care. He just won $1.5 million. He, he didn't care at all. So he, I felt like I won the lottery. It's great that you noticed so, opportunities like that. That is awesome. Secondhand stuff. That's the thing, you know, but watch for, you have to be patient. You can't ever be in a hurry. It's got to be things that like right now we're looking for a, we want a double stroke because we have two babies, but we, we don't need it today. We, you know, we're just going to watch what comes up. We're going to uh, make some, throw some low ball offers out there and you can do it with anything. You can do it from strollers all the way up to real estate. You know, you throw out 20 low ball offers sooner or later, one of them will hit. Somebody will just be ready to get up off of something. You know, they, they just need to sell it. I knew a guy that got a, he got a, a Ford pickup truck for $50 like that one time and it ran, but you, patience you, is- you can't expect it to happen all the time. You have to have a lot of patience with it. So I guess that's my, my frugal tip is, you know, something that you don't need right away, but you want, you know, take your time with it and watch for people that, that are Perfect. getting new stuff. So our final question for you, Aaron, is this is a new question we've added. So what would the hero of your movie do right now in your life? So if your life was a movie, you're the protagonist, you're the hero. What would you do? At this moment, I'm in a movie and I'm the hero. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Maybe. uh <laughs> I never, I never, I've never even thought about being a hero. <laughs> let me think. Let me think. Let me think. Well, I think after this podcast, uh, you're going to be a lot of people's hero. Oh, I think, I think you know what I would do because I know a lot because I'm married into an Islamic family. I think that's one of the things that I've come to understand. Maybe I can, you know, affect somehow affect that divide that we have in the world between. Where there's this, this big mistrust with Muslims and, and Islam and, and all the, the drama that it's causing. Like, I would, I don't know, I'd go to Jerusalem or, or Israel or something and, and sort it out. You know, I'd say, look, there's so much we have in common, which is what yeah. I found out that between people that grow up in Christian countries, people who grow up in Muslim countries. Pretty much, they like 98% believe the same thing, the same people, you know, in their. I'm not really a religious person, you know, but it shocks me at how, how different they believe they are when, when they're really, really so, so similar and so, you know, so much the same. So I'd like to somehow end that, that friction that it just seems so ridiculous that that, that continues to, to be an issue. I mean, me, me and my wife, we come from these two different worlds and we have, 
I feel like we, we have a wonderful life and we complement each other and it, and it makes us more interesting. And it's not something that, that we should be fighting over or, or, or the, the friction that's caused there is something we could we could sort out uh, rather easy, easily if, if we, we put some effort into it. Just tell them, just, you know what, just why don't we go to the grocery store together, get ourselves a mango yogurt and just <laughs> enjoy life. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, get to know each other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, one of the one of the most nerve wracking things I've ever done is is in Indonesia, go in the mosque. I'm the only white guy. They ne- never seen seen white guy in the mosque. You know, we don't really like we don't try with other cultures. We expect them to come to us and and speak our language and do things their way. We we don't go the other way. Go go learn about them. You know. Yeah. So. True. so so yeah, we just wanted to say thank you for being on the show. And before we wrap up, we always like to get our guests to ask the audience a question. So is there a question that you'd like to share? Yeah, yeah. I thought about this one too, because you guys gave me the prompt yeah. on this. And I know not everyone in your audience is going to know about it, but I thought maybe there might be someone because of the group of people that you appeal to. One of the things that I, I'm really interested in are these, have you ever seen like the houses people make out of shipping containers? Yeah. You know yeah. about this? Yeah. I think that's so cool. And I saw I saw a really cool one the other day where it was like multi-level and it just looked awesome. And I one time I had an office in one where we ran out of office space. So we had people that were working in a uh, shipping container uh, near the building and it had an air conditioning in it and everything it was fine. So and I know they're, they're pretty cheap. You can get like I also know I've seen on the Internet, read about it. You know, you get a piece of land out somewhere rural. You put your shipping container there and you can fix it up. You put a few of them, different designs. And there's quite a bit on the Internet, but I'm not like a tradesman. I'm not like handy. I don't know where you start with that. So I don't want I'm not sure that I'll do it, but I I have like I'm really interested to know more about it. I could just imagine like being off the grid, having solar panels, water collection, you know, maybe maybe a few goats about a mile from the beach, ride my bike down to the beach somewhere in Australia, you know, up in, in, out in Queensland somewhere. I don't know, you know, maybe not. Maybe none of this would ever happen. Man, this sounds like what the hero of your movie might do. <laughs> <laughs> the question I'd like to ask is, how do you acquire a shipping container? And how do you get someone to to modify it for you? Is there like someone like me who isn't like skilled with metalworking and stuff? Although I'd like to learn things like that, like are there people out there that, that are like professionals in that? Like, I guess I just want want some direction on that more than, than I've been able to. Even though I've read a lot about it, but I can't seem to get, yeah. get traction. Yeah, absolutely. If any of the listeners here know anything about that and are happy to share with Aaron, definitely reach out. Where's the best place for people to reach out and uh, get in touch with you? They can find me on Facebook. They can email me. Dixie Down Under is my my Gmail account, or my and I'm also on Reddit on that too. It's Dixie because I came from Virginia and Down Under because I lived in Australia. That's how how, <laughs> how you can remember it. So send me an email is probably the best. I check that most often, or Facebook, either one. Aaron Matthew Hamilton on Facebook. I'm easy to find. Not well hidden or anything on the internet. I don't uh, try to be anonymous, so they could find me pretty easily. Well, uh, perfect. That's awesome. So otherwise. Audience members, jump over and you can check out Aaron's blog. We'll have a link to it in the video description down below. And you can follow along with expat dad over there. And otherwise, again, just thanks so much for Aaron. This was an amazing interview. I think our audience is going to get a lot from it. Thank you so much for being on the show, Aaron.
Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it. Sorry I did, did so much talking and didn't let, let you guys talk. I really enjoyed talking to you. And yeah, and if you want to read my blog, I, you know, I'm not, not trying to sell anything or direct anybody to anything. Keep that in mind. I'm not in any kind of pyramid scheme or anything. I just want to point that out. I'm just, you know, I'm just a, just a guy that likes to talk about it. So, or, or tell people what I'm up to. I'll pay attention to what you guys post too. It was very nice talking to you. I think you got a, a really professional thing going here. So thanks for taking the time. There are just so many different ways to approach fire and living life on your own terms. Aaron's enthusiasm as well is just contagious. I love episodes like this where we can have real people chasing fire through classic methods presented by Jacob from ERE, Pete from Mr. Money Mustache. It's a reminder that everyone has control over their spending and it's really not complicated to reach financial independence. And while you're waiting for the next episode, jump over to Facebook and join the London on Fire community and follow us on Instagram at On Fire Podcast. And make sure to tune in for the next On Fire Podcast where we interview Dan DeVoe, a real estate entrepreneur leaning pretty hard toward fat fire with a lofty goal of $10 million in retirement. Thanks for listening. This is Matt and Kellen signing off. And until next episode, remember, being normal, buying shit doesn't make you happy. And always remember what Franklin D. Roosevelt said. Happiness is not the mere possession of money. It lies in the joy of achievement, in the thrill of the creative effort. They better leave us a written review.